Welcome to Our Social Impact, brought to you by the Prison Scholar Fund. Its mission provides education and employment assistance to help currently and formerly incarcerated people succeed and thrive in society while avoiding homelessness and the revolving door of reincarceration. We also advocate for reform in correctional education to increase opportunity for all. As a nonprofit, we rely on investments, volunteers, and are always looking for board members to champion our mission. Please connect with us through our website at prisonscholars.org, where you can find volunteer opportunities, make a contribution, and learn about becoming a board member. Or send an email to info at prisonscholars.org. You can also find us through most social media platforms at Prison Scholars. Become a patron by supporting us directly at Patreon. Find us at Prison Scholars. Without further ado, here's Dirk Van Velzen, Executive Director of the Prison Scholar Fund. So today we have Nick Anderson, Senior Vice President at Columbia Bank. So Nick, what do you do there? Um, well, you know, I lead a, a team of bankers and this team serves the needs of you know, nearly a thousand businesses throughout the Puget Sound. The team's based in Seattle and Bellevue, but we cover a geography that goes really from Olympia to Bellingham. So what do you love about banking? Oh man. Um, I'm assuming you like it. Yeah, yeah. Really right now what I'm loving about my work is um, acting as a coach with the team. Um, you know, I've been in the business more than 20 years and early on it was the idea, the notion that I'm helping people kind of achieve, you know, some financial goals, uh, in some cases financial dreams. Now I get to work with uh, a group of people and help them kind of achieve their career goals. Uh, that's just, that's the most rewarding. You mentioned earlier Pacific Continental Bank. I left Opus Bank to follow a banker whom I had met there and uh, was the, the regional president for Pacific Continental Bank. So went to work for him here again because I was pursuing work that I knew I could could love, could love doing. And that actually put me into a space where I was primarily focused on working with nonprofit sector organizations and full circle, that's how I meet you. Yeah, I think I found you. I must have Googled nonprofit banks and you came up and somehow we connected. Love Google. Yeah. <laughs> Where's LinkedIn? One, one of the two. Yeah. yeah. So, how did you kind of fit? What was your job before the nonprofit focus and how did you end up in that spot? Um, I had all kinds of different jobs. I um, worked in the, like the consumer side of banking, so, you know, personal bank accounts, CDs, mortgages had spent some time in commercial banking, lending money to businesses. Most of the uh, work that I have done has focused on the deposit side of a business's uh, banking needs, checking accounts, um, credit cards, payments, direct deposit payroll, et cetera. And, um, and I, I, like to say, I like to tell the story this way. Um, I wanted, because I spent so much time at work, at work, you know, away from the family. I wanted to choose who I was spending time with. And there were two groups of people that really materialized as I spent some time thinking about this. And it, they're both entrepreneurs. One is the entrepreneur that is very profit driven, 
Um, and I would say oftentimes I'd be interested in working with companies that were private equity backed because there's, uh, there's just a different level of sophistication and complication when it comes to working with equity backed firms versus you know, closely held family businesses. And, and the other entrepreneur is the nonprofit entrepreneur. And the thing that I say is similar about these two people is that they're the individuals that stay up late into the night dreaming about how to make the world different. And then they wake up early to go do it. Those are the people that I wanted to serve as a bank partner. The people crazy enough to follow yeah. a dream, have yeah. an idea. Yeah. Yeah. People like you, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, I <laughs> sometimes I fantasize about just quitting this whole thing and getting a job at Home Depot. Yeah, yeah, but that lasted for about a week yeah. or two. <laughs> my my fantasies are being um, being a server in a high end restaurant, and just delivering meals to people that enjoy an experience. Um, I had a job at a coffee shop. I loved it. You just like you make coffee and you talk to people. Yeah, and then you clock out. There's no yeah. pressure after it's done. It's awesome. You just go home. Awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some fancy restaurants around town, and I'm like those. Those servers probably make a decent living, and uh, all they're doing is making people happy. Yeah. You know, worst thing is you take the food back and you bring them something else, right? Yeah. Maybe bring you something you love. Comp them a nice bottle of wine. Sounds like a delightful existence. So, so I, I'm talking with um, with the the guy I want to go work with, and um, Nazem Karmali is his name. Nazem, this is the work I want to do. I want to work with these two, you know, groups. And he says, "Great." We really love working with nonprofits. The the other group wasn't a, a great fit for the bank, and so that was fine. I really got to double down on serving nonprofit sector organizations as a banker in that in that capacity. So back to to education, and you know what I think um, is is really well connected to kind of the notion of the social impact, right? is um, I, I reached out to a couple of schools and inquired about a, a master's degree. And one of them took my call. Uh, that was Seattle University. And they were, they were open and interested in allowing me to apply for their Master of Nonprofit Leadership uh, course. I had also looked into some other uh, MPA, um, a Master of Public Administration. I, the MBA thing wasn't of uh, particular interest because I think you know, 20 years in banking, I've got um, enough business acumen. Um, and I have an interest in leaving the banking industry and doing work in the nonprofit sector at some point um, into the future. So Seattle U uh, took my application. Uh, they took it serious enough to uh, invite me to you know, participate in the program. And that was uh, just a few years ago. So what was that application process looking like without the undergraduate degree? I had, yeah, I actually um, had an hour-ish long interview with the director of the program before even applying to see if I, you know, basically applied to apply. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then got the invitation to apply, but, you know, there's no guarantees. Um, and uh, kind of the, the intent here connects back to some things you were saying. I want to transition from the work that I do today in banking into the nonprofit sector. And, you know, some people sector hop, but I perceived having the degree as, as like something that would legitimize my entry into leading nonprofit work. 
I also want to learn about leadership from a, a different perspective, um, and this this afforded me that opportunity. But what I uh, really got excited about was the capstone work research that I did around impact investing, where I could really uh, bring in the knowledge that I have from the banking sector and corporate finance, uh, and looking at the work that I've done serving nonprofit organizations and their financial needs and say there's there's a different solution to funding the growth and capital expenses of nonprofit organizations. Yeah, so let's talk about that. How does a how does a nonprofit jump into impact investing with you guys? Um, you know, how they do it with with us guys is uh, is pretty traditional, and the research that I did and Columbia Bank does this now. That's well, what Columbia Bank does is very um, very traditional. The research that I did was non traditional, and I think you know I think there's an opportunity to to actually you know make this make this happen, and so I'm I'm actively looking for um, you know what we what we say in the business is, is deal flow. So it looks like this. He has some small proposal with Columbia Bank to do a couple sample projects. Um, there's yeah, like I, I've floated the research, you know, by by a few folks, and there's a, there's there's a there there. Yeah. Um, but it only materializes if the market says there's a need and there's an interest. So it looks like this. You know, maybe maybe an organization, um, you know, maybe Prison Scholars Fund wants to. Um, Invest in a, a building, a facility, a place where uh, where folks go for education, right? And uh, maybe that's you know on site in in a prison. Maybe it's a uh, who knows what it is, but some it's like some capacity capital building project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a capital project. Let's say that. Um, how are you going to pay for that? Right. That's the question. Yeah, somebody has to finance it. Yeah. Or we get a major donor. There it is, okay. right? So you're going to get, people are going to contribute money, um, maybe through some contract work, you've got earned income that, that might pay for it, but not all up front. That earned income might sustain debt payments over time. Um, chances are unlikely that a bank is going to finance all of it, right? There's no real 100% Financing programs, or even ninety percent, even even government uh, government sponsored loan programs like through the SBA are not available for nonprofit organizations. But m- maybe a donor, you know, would write a ten thousand dollar check, but not a ten million dollar check. But maybe that donor has interest in supporting your organization, and they would do so by loaning your organization that money at a below market interest rate. I think that there's interest out there from from the philanthropic side, from philanthropy. I think there's needs in the market, but there's a gap. And the gap is that philanthropists are not lenders. They're not banks. And it's it's not a transaction where it's like, you know, hey Dirk, here's 10 million bucks and you know just pay me back when you can, right? There's more sophistication. There's there's a little bit of paperwork involved. So I, I just hypothesized that that banks who do this work already could play the part of, you know, kind of the, the middle the middle person in the transaction um, and provide a service into the market where there's where there's potentially a need. 
Um, and through the research, what I uncovered is that there's probably, uh, as a starting point, there's probably a $30 billion opportunity nationwide that um, private and community foundations could put $30 billion of additional capital into the marketplace, into the nonprofit sector directly at below market rates, which reduce the expense, the overhead expense for organizations. So it's really the foundations as opposed to people kicking the money for this. That's right. And the reason it's a below market rate is because as opposed to a foundation giving the money to a nonprofit and it's gone, they still get a return, they get some of the yeah. capital back. Yeah, that's right. You know, foundations um, have a, a corpus, they have They've got money. They're required to give away 5% per year, generally. And so there's 95% that's left over that they invest in things. They invest in stocks and bonds, mutual funds, other things. They could direct some of those investments, and I suggested 3% is a prudent starting point, into discrete private placement um, loans. There's a lot of organizations that are doing this um, on a local scale throughout the com- throughout the country, there's a lot of foundations that are doing private placement loans, kind of on a one-off. Uh, Russell Family Foundation locally uh, is one that's uh, that's been out front. Um, there's another organization that kind of works with individual donor constituents. Um, it's called Semble, um, and they're doing some of this work. What I'm suggesting through my research is that we we take this to a massive scale. We approach community and private foundations that control nearly a trillion dollars and ask that they allocate 3% of that trillion, so there's your 30 billion, to providing below market rate loans into the nonprofit sector to fuel growth, expansion, and capital projects. And I think that there's a handful of regional community banks throughout the the country that can facilitate these transactions in a way that makes economic sense for everyone. Sounds great. (laughs) Sign me up, right? Sign me up. So do you have any traction? Has anybody signed up? Like, hey, we love it. No, no. I I finished uh, grad school last year. Yeah, pretty recent. um, And I've been working with a few um, organizations tied in with philanthropy um, to kind of run the idea, see if there's if there's interest, if there's traction. It's, you know, we're kind of in that floating the weather balloon state. I did the research, I've got the hypothesis, now I'm kind of floating it out uh, to the market to see if there's if there's traction. Interesting. It almost kind of reminds me of how new profit operates. Instead of working with uh, foundations they work with, they're almost like a VC firm. Yeah, and the return on the to the investors is not a return on capital; it's a return on social good. Right. So you know their investment is to see something happen in society. Yeah. And so their metrics are driven by that. Yeah, and I I just love everything that's going on in this kind of social investing, impact investing space, and social investment bonds, and everything that New Profits working with. There's there's a lot of energy moving in this direction, and so I'm just suggesting the and the research says we can add one more slice to the pie and make that pie just a little bit bigger. So we've got another tool. So uh, we'll see, we'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. You know, every overnight success took 10 years to, <laughs> to make. So maybe 10 years from now we can be talking about this again. It's funny you say that because I feel really frustrated like our lack of growth sometimes. Yeah. And one of my mentors said, you know, every overnight success takes years and years to happen. Yep. But you, looking back, you always say, oh, it just happened. Yeah, man. 
Um, I can't think of any overnight successes that I've had. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you kind of uh, have a passion for the nonprofit people, the entrepreneurs. Yeah. So what's your exposure there? Are you on any boards? Do you um, want to start one yourself? Uh, two very good questions. I'm not serving on any um, governing boards. Uh, right now I'm a member of the finance committee of uh, the Rotary Club that I belong to. Um, I've served on boards, I've chaired boards, and a couple of years ago made the decision not to serve on boards any longer. Um, I wrote an article about that on LinkedIn, and uh, the title of the article is, um, I love you, but I won't serve on your board, and here's why. And if I, if I really kind of summarize the, the message there, it's that I really recognized um, kind of, I don't want to summarize it, I want to unpack it. So I'm a person that people ask to serve on boards a lot. You've asked me, right? Uh, many people have asked me because I look like the person who could serve on a board. Um, and when I say look like, I don't just mean aesthetically, um, but it's it's said in uh, in the nonprofit world, look for board members that have time, talent, and treasure. And um, I I broke those th three things down. And time I've I've given many evenings and weekends in support of nonprofit organizations, serving on boards or other kind of volunteerism. And I can continue to do that without being a voting, decision-making, governing board member. People look to me for talent. Um, it seems like CPAs and bankers and attorneys are folks that everybody wants on their board. Um, I can, I'm, I'm happy to share what I know, share my, my talents um, as an advisor, which you know, you and I've worked that out, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I don't need a decision-making seat on the board. And and treasure, um, you know, I, I've said that my family supports organizations, um, but we're not, you know, we don't write big checks, but we do write checks. And I can continue to support organizations and, um, you know, make, make contributions without having a decision-making seat on the board. So then there's this fourth T, and I, here's my puns, I play on words, it's diversity, right? And what I'm suggesting by you know just saying no to boards is, um, I don't wanna take a seat away from somebody who doesn't look like me, but is at least equally, if not more qualified to be a decision-making person in the governance of an organization. And I'll support everybody. I'll support them all. I'll help folks become good board members. And I do that um, as a part of work that I do as a, a guest faculty with the organization Seattle Works that does uh, a one day how to be a board member, you know, board training. Um, so that's that's where my kind of um, time and talents are, are directed is really at supporting other folks um, in their roles as decision-making board members. Yeah, actually, Seattle Works is really cool. We, we ended up with two board members from a, from a like a board member happy hour that's hosted yeah. the Gates Foundation. That's awesome. I think they worked with Leadership Tomorrow, a couple other organizations, United Way. Yeah. And then they kind of trained them up on how to be a board member, and they just had a uh, come meet some nonprofits. Yeah. And we, were, we ended up there. 
There's there's so many great uh, organizations. You just mentioned another um, leadership tomorrow. Phenomenal. I'm a an LT alum. Um, really opened my eyes uh, and and actually gave me the capacity to speak about um, privilege uh, in ways that I I couldn't or didn't um, prior to that experience. Um, and then there's there's another uh, organization here locally. Um, Board talks, uh, table talks, run by yeah. Janet Bogich. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's uh, she's someone near and dear to my heart because when I went on my first board, when I served on my as a as a decision making board member for the first time, I went through board talks, and that uh, was so so meaningful to me um, that it really has informed and inspired you know my interest in providing some some coaching to board members to help folks you know, be more effective. So it's kind of interesting, you're talking about being an expert on the board. And of course, you, you're kind of an expert now because you went through the Seattle University Nonprofit Leadership Program, and that's a master's program. Yeah, yeah. So you're probably an expert now. And in your experience on boards, how many of the other board members do you really think are experts? And would that, maybe some people might not want to join a board because they don't think they're expert enough. So we're just kind of a just a regular person with regular skills. Yeah, I mean, if I'm if I'm kind of offering an opinion about the acumen of board members on the whole through through the world, um, I think by and large you've got a, an exceptional group of people, and many of them begin with zero experience, no understanding. But because a nonprofit corporation is a different animal. Yeah, right. Um, and they have they have big hearts and altruistic ideas, and they bring with them um, a set of experiences and knowledge that are very very valuable. And so it's all good. And there's the gap, which is how to translate what they know into being effective as a as a governing individual recognizing just for example recognizing the difference between um you know a working board and a governing board that's where i think i see uh, a lot of the most apparent like challenges is folks don't necessarily know that there's a difference and that in some organizations you, you gotta actually do work and in other organizations you shouldn't be doing the day-to-day -day work um, fundraising is another, um, uh, I'd like to say gap, but I'm going to say gap, right? I mean, how many individuals in the world are comfortable talking to their friends and family and their community about money? Just in general, it's taboo to talk about money. But then to ask someone, um, how much would you feel comfortable supporting our organization this year? You know, is $5,000 comfortable for your family or should we look at some of the, the higher option? You know? Yeah. Like um, I've spent more than half my life talking with people about money. So I have a different you know level of, of comfort with that. But so working, governing, uh, fundraising. Um, and then, you know, here's, here's my favorite. The, the independent entrepreneur CEO that is used to just, getting shit done and 
then he's stuck on a board having meetings with consensus. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> and other human beings that you know need to kind of come along. Yeah, um, and you know I can I can laugh now because I have made all of those mistakes, every single one of them, um, and. And so, you know, there's even even having gone through some official, you know, kind of training programs, uh, made all these mistakes. Here, here's a funny one. I said early on, well, why why can't we just hire a fundraiser and pay them a commission on you know the money that they that they raise? Um, because I'm you know for profit, you know, public private sector sales guy. And I didn't realize that in the professional fundraising world, there's a code of ethics. And like yeah, the, the AFP people don't like it. No, IRS is okay no. with it as long as you don't violate, you know, sure. too much compensation. Yeah. yeah, but there's, you know, so if you're talking to, uh, you know, an advancement professional that has signed on to this code of ethics, and you ignorantly suggest something that is acceptable in all the rest of the world, um, so there's there's some some nuance there, and you know, I, I made I learned that the um, not in a book. <laughs> it's yeah. funny, you've probably seen that Dan Pallotta TED Talk when he kind of talks about how we think about charity is all wrong. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's... Um, and that's a really good point. Yes. Yeah, the overhead myth. Yeah. Right? Um, I believe that, subscribe to that 100%. I, um, I have an allergic reaction to the idea that nonprofit organizations uh, should... Or, or that, that CE... That, that anybody leading nonprofit work should accept less pay for the work that they do, because you know these are these are organizations that that shelter the homeless and feed the hungry and educate people in the world and reduce recidivism and and change the fucking world. And we're saying you should do that for less and play by a different set of rules. Because why? Yeah. Why wouldn't we say as a society we're going to pay you more? You're making an impact. Like, what? What is our problem? So, yeah, I mean, I could, I get really fired up with that, um, and you know, and on the flip side, I understand the notion that you know, if I'm writing a ten dollar check to a food bank, my preference is that you know, all ten of those dollars go to food. But if I understand that you know, maybe nine bucks went to food, and a dollar went to pay for the professional fundraiser that's out there raising another 10 million, you know, I'd say, yeah, actually all 10 of my dollars should pay for that fundraiser to go raise 20 million. Like, and that's, that's the hardest part. Cause like on the macro level, it really makes sense. Like, yeah. like every, every dollar past the marginal value should be spent on fundraising. But when the individual donor thinks, even yes. though I'm making the pie bigger and you're getting a small percentage of a bigger pie, that's, yeah, I mean your your use of the the macro perspective versus the what about my dollars micro perspective, yeah. man, solve that problem, and you know you'll be the next AFP global <laughs> president, right? It's you know is it is it information? Is it communication? Is it I, I don't know, I, I don't know the answer to that, but from you know from this micro perspective, because you know of the experiences. Um, you know, I can say very, very easily that I'm, I'm supportive of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Of, and, and that being, I'll write my whole check to pay for the advancement professional that can lever that up 
2x, 3x. The other thing that, the other mistake that I made, um, so ignorant, was, uh, well, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll hire a, a fundraising professional and, you know, we'll pay them uh, 50,000 bucks a year um, and they, they should be able to raise, you know, three times that, four times that, right? No, I mean, <laughs> that come on, in, in the first year. Yeah. So then you get to the end of 12 months and it's like, well, they, they only they only raised, you know, I mean, 60,000. That would be amazing, by the way. In, you know, your first year on the job, just meeting donors, just doing, you know. Um, so, and, and here again, I am preaching to the converted, if there's any folks in the nonprofit sector listening, um, maybe in this, the message needs to go out to the private sector to understand you know, we're not we're not selling cars here. You can't just put somebody on the lot and expect them to start turning deals. We're developing relationships with folks who are asking to give us money, and that takes time. And we have to we have to accept that we're making an investment in these folks over time, right? With all things. Um, so those are those are some things that that I know now. After you know more than a decade of board service and direct support of nonprofit organizations, and having a master's, you know, and you know, and 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 right layers. Yeah, it's so funny because like it's transactional but different. Like in the corporate world, it's transactional because I'm giving you money and I'm getting a product. But in the nonprofit world, it's like I'm giving you money based on the assumption you're going to do something with that money in the future that's good for society. So there's trust built in, and it's less quantifiable. Yeah. Other than we trust you to spend this money. I mean, it's, you know, what it is, is it's it's so unique and so nuanced. The, the, the relationship between a donor and an organization and the reasons for which that donor makes a contribution are myriad. I, it isn't just one thing. It isn't that straightforward transaction. You know, here's a thousand bucks. Thanks for my iPhone. Folks might support an organization because it's it's uh, related to a cause that affected somebody that they love. They might support an organization because of their own you know personal values, even though they haven't had a direct. I mean, there's just so many, so many reasons. Oh yes, and it's always personal too. I think one of my favorite stories. And I don't know if I told this to you yet, but we had a major donor in Arizona, and we talked on the phone a couple times. He loved what we were doing. Uh, I was going to Arizona anyway, so he invited me to come see him. And then kind of a couple of days before I visited him, I just called him back up to confirm plans. And his, to- his tone of voice was completely different. Hmm. He said, hey, I just want to let you know I'm not giving you any money. Okay. Happy to stop by and see you anyways. Yeah. He said a second time, just to, just to be completely clear, I'm not giving you any money. Wow. Like, and I said, hey, no problem. I was like, hey, look, I run a nonprofit. If, if at some point in the future you want to cut us a check, great. You know, that's how we make things happen. But in the meantime, happy to just come and see you. Yeah. See, third time, just to be clear, <laughs> I'm not giving you any money. He was clear. Yeah. Uh, God, put your land down. I, I got it, buddy. So, of course, I go and see him. And after a couple of margaritas, he gets the checkbook out. It says, I'm going to write you a $10,000 check. Wow. Just because you had enough balls to come see me anyways, even when I told you I wasn't going to give you any money. <laughs> so, so, I was like, can we do this every yeah. week? Yeah. <laughs> every, every individual donor is unique. Yeah. And what inspires them to give is unique. And so the fundraising professionals that exist in this world have a very um, unique set of talents to, to be able to listen 
and to understand and then to connect the, the interest with the cause. And the folks that I love the most in this space are the ones that are willing to walk away, that are willing to go and have a conversation with this person and know that I may not, like this may not result in a contribution, but I want to go find out, you know, if, if it's, if it's a match and, um, yeah, just, a, I, I have so much, um, love and appreciation for the folks that, uh, that have committed their professional lives to raising money for the nonprofit sector for sure. So what's your favorite gift and your favorite regret? Favorite gift. And Did you really tell, wow, they really just knocked it out of the park with that one. Oh, um, hmm. You're stumping me on this <laughs> one. Um, so that really t- telling you something like, if the donor, if the nonprofit isn't communicating how you spent, they, they spent your money well, then that's probably a failure on our side. Yeah. Because if, you, if you're not, if they're not reporting, hey, you gave us 250 bucks, here's what we did with it. You know, and, and you're not super proud. Here's, here's the thing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm totally reflecting on that question. I don't really ever, so uniqueness, right? Uniqueness of donors. I don't really ever follow up and say like, so I'm not reading the annual report. I'm not looking at outcomes. So, so they send you something, it's, but you're just, you know. Nah, nah. All of the work for me as a donor is upfront. And if we've gotten to that to that point where this is aligned with you know kind of the direction that my my family right because my wife and I you know this is these are joint decisions right um, and and even with the kids sometimes the kids are involved in some of these so anyhow if we've made the decision that this is an area we want to support and then we have the trust and the confidence in the organization we're making the contribution and that's where it ends for me and I'm unique right I'm not. Um, you know, I'm not looking at spreadsheets and outcomes and measuring and, you know, I'm not writing grants and expecting reports back. I, um, I am giving money to the organization because I trust that they're going to do with it what they said they're going to do with it. And, you know, that's a lot easier for me to do with, you know, say $250 or $500 than it is if I'm, uh, you know, a grant making organization and I'm funding something at, at a half a million or a million these are different, different conversations. I don't think that, um, as a as an individual donor, I have really uh, a right to to go inspect on on that investment. That's why it kind of probably makes sense why you don't have a bad story too. Yeah, I I really don't um, because, like I say, when when that decision's made, it's made, and and they all feel like they're they're good. Yeah, they're all good. Yeah. It's like asking me which one's which one of my kids is my favorite. I mean, <laughs> you know, depends on the day. Yeah, <laughs> you might not tell me, but you know, yeah, you got yeah, a favorite. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's whichever one uh, does the dishes tonight. Yeah, and what uh, keeps you up at night? What and what what you get, what gets you out of bed in the morning? You know, uh, what gets my team, my team, the people that I'm serving. Um, I I I use the description. Uh, I'm more player or, or I'm more coach than player anymore. Um, and those are the folks that I'm like responsible to uh, on a professional level. The, the things that, that keep me up at night and get me out of bed in the morning are, are all human centric. 
it's my family, it's my friends, it's my team, it's relationships. Um, and you know, Monday through Friday when I'm going going to work, um, it's about those folks. So honestly, what's next for me is I, I'd love to work myself out of a job. I'd love to develop the folks on the team who want to take my job and then let them have it, right? Nice. And uh, and then who knows, uh, you know, maybe maybe the bank wants to keep me around, or maybe it's time for me to go into the into the nonprofit sector. Um, it, one thing I've learned about life is I have no clue what's going to happen tomorrow, right? It'll probably be okay. Yeah. The direct answer to what's next is I would love to be involved in um, in leading philanthropy. And I don't know exactly like what that means in terms of title and role. I joke that um, that I want to be the the CEO of the Seattle Foundation only because the CEO there is um, is a person whom I've um, gotten to know and admired over the years. So I joke with him like I, I want your job, um, but I'm not sure if that's like exactly the work. But the the kind of impact uh, that I think I can make. Um, comes from that space. It comes from the direction and allocation um, and uh, and maybe even creative structure of capital. Like that's that's the way I was built. Can't wait to see what you do. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for your time and thanks for uh, sharing your story. Well, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. All right. See you next time. All right. <laughs>